Hi everyone, welcome to this week's episode of No Such Thing as a Fish. Daniel Schreiber is away this week. Uh, I thought it was because his wife was having a baby, but he's just sent an email saying, tell them it's something to do with my brand new book, The Theory of Everything Else, available in all good bookshops. And I'm like, well, look, whatever reason he's away, we have a very exciting guest that is in his stead, and that is the wonderful comedian Angela Barnes. Uh, You will have seen her on your televisions, most notably on the TV show Mock the Week, but she does all sorts of other stuff. I appeared on her radio show a couple of years ago and immediately knew that she would be perfect for Fish. She is the most inquisitive, interested person. You're going to absolutely love her. And once you've heard the show, you are going to want to go and see her live in her upcoming tour called Hot Mess. And tickets for that are currently available on her website, which is angelabarnescomedy.co.uk. If you can't wait to see her live, then why not go and check out her podcast? It is called We Are History Podcast, uh, which she does with John O'Farrell, and it is all about history. It's really funny. It's really great. You've got to go and listen. It's available wherever you get your podcasts. Anyway, Dan will be back next week, uh, but in the meantime, on with the podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of No Such Thing as a Fish, a weekly podcast coming to you from the QI offices in Covent Garden. My name is Anna Tashinsky and I am joined today by Andrew Hunter-Murray, James Hawkin and our very special guest, Dan Schreiber replacement, hopefully permanent, Angela Barnes. <laughs> Hello. Hello. Okay, once again, we've gathered around the microphone with our four favourite facts from the last seven days, and in no particular order, here we go. Starting with you, Angela. Okay, so I've always wanted to say this. My fact this week (laughs) is that in communist East Germany in the 1950s, the state came up with a sanctioned dance for their teenagers to do. They were a bit worried about the influence of rock and roll from the West. Elvis mm. Presley was doing his military service in West Germany. Oh, so no. they were picking up all the Elvis yeah. on their radios and their TVs. he always sang while he was doing his yeah. service. <laughs> really, <didn't> he? <laughs> really loudly, over the wall. <laughs> and, uh, and so they were all the youngsters, they were worried about their hip-thrusting movements. Yeah. And the state felt that dancing on your own was subversive, that you should dance in a couple. Yeah. But oh, when you did dance in a couple... You shouldn't be gyrating like Elvis. Fair enough. And what I know about teenagers is not very much. Right. (laughs) Probably that they wouldn't necessarily do what the government told them or... Well, no. <laughs> but it I mean, was, it, the dance in question, the, the lipsy dance. The lipsy. It would have to be unbelievably good for teenagers to want to do it. It'd and have to be Agadoo. Was it good? <laughs> <laughs> and, and was it Agadoo? It definitely wasn't Agadoo. Uh. What was it? Was it good? I haven't seen this dance. So it was two choreographers um, came up with the dance, Krista and Helmut Seifert. Mm-hmm. And they came up the steps and it was an East German composer called René Dubiansky who came up with the music. And it was, basically it was a fast waltz. So he merged two waltz beats into a 6-4 beat because there's nothing that teenagers like Mm. more than waltzing. (laughs) A double Um, waltz. And the idea was that they would dance together but their hips wouldn't wiggle. 
So there's there's footage of it on YouTube. If you look, and it just at first it looks like a normal sort of Latin-y kind of dance, and then you realise that their hips don't move. Weird. It's and very, it just looks odd. Very staid. It feels like yeah. a, a reverse Irish dance kind of is that not Wait, right is Cause... Irish dancing just hips moving but the rest is <laughs> <laughs> it's just like the bottom half moving yeah I suppose right? it is yeah. yeah 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 but no it's not like even that. they don't move even Irish dance doesn't um doesn't move your hips around much no I've taken Irish dancing classes have you in my time yeah, yeah I can really picture that <laughs> can you I it's really a Michael can. flatly it's about nice. you isn't as it? A, <laughs> <laughs> yeah as a boy I learned some uh, some river dance it actually was, what we never cool. noticed because we always record around the table is that you're always river dancing yeah Whenever we record, we I wonder to, why I kept the, getting bruised shins. The effort in the edit to remove the constant clackety clack <laughs> of me dancing away. I, I actually had a doctor say to me once. So I have something called periodic limb movement disorder, which means in my sleep my legs flail. Oh really? Um, oh. And I did a sleep study oh. once at Guy's Hospital, and in the official report he said two things. It one was that my snoring was, and I quote, heroic, nice. which I was very proud of. <laughs> and the other wow. was that like watching me sleep was like watching horizontal river dance. Wow. That's, That's in my awesome. official. Amazing. They've made it sound like compliments, both of those I know, things. Right? I think that's really thoughtful. <laughs> yeah. I was such a lucky man. Yeah. Do, do you have to sort of ha- have a mini sleeping bag for your legs alone? Or? Well, it, I don't think it contains... So whenever I have slept in a sleeping bag, I've woken up with it on the floor. You can't be contained. Really? So I just can't be contained. <laughs> the energy... If I could wire it up to the national grid in this energy crisis, <laughs> we'd be all right. Um, what were we talking about? Dancing. Well, dancing. dancing. Sorry, yes. yes. Dancing. I didn't realise how what a threat... Elvis was Ooh, at the time. God, people went nuts over Elvis. Well, they thought riots. he was going to impregnate every woman on earth. <laughs> yeah. There were riots in East Germany in 1959 really? in, mm-hmm. um, in uh, about 14 East German cities and towns. And there, there then had to be crackdowns. So Leipzig had a crackdown. Leipzig is where the Lipsy dance, the state one is Lip- from. Lipsy's really? from the Latin name for is Leipzig. Really? Yeah. yeah. And they, they sentenced 15 demonstrators to prison sentences of between six months and four and a half years for going to pro Elvis oh protests. Mm. Really? Yeah. But it was everywhere. We shouldn't tar East Germany with this solitary brush. Rock and roll was sort of vilified in a way that I don't think any legitimate music ever has been. There's plenty of Americans that were frightened about the influence of... So yeah. many, Elvis yeah. As well. Do you know there was a state-sponsored rock and roll festival in the US? Oh, in the um, US? Yeah, in America, which uh, like hated rock and roll as well, but it was called Vortex One. It sounds like the saddest thing ever, but apparently it was quite popular. <laughs> Do you remember the festival of Brexit? <laughs> oh, <It> was, no. <laughs> this was like if that had been a success. Yeah, okay. Um, this is that. It was in Oregon. And um, I'm surprised that the hippies agreed to go to it because it was basically because Nixon was going to visit Portland, Oregon in 1970, I believe. And this was obviously at a time of like extreme anti-war protests mm. and extreme government crackdowns on those protests mm. in America. And there was a fear that the hippies would start protesting or the peace protesters would start protesting. So to get rid mm. of them, basically, the state government said, guys, do you want a fest? Should we give you a festival? And they oh. all went for it because they really wanted peace. But more than that, they wanted a rock <laughs> festival where they had license to take drugs. Like the state was like, look, mm. we'll turn a blind eye to all the drug taking and the nudity. Just to get, what, just, sorry, is it just to get them out of town when Nixon's in town? Sounds like that's it. Yeah. That was it. Sounds like a sitcom. It does. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh no, we've accidentally got them crossing paths here. Oh. <laughs> 
And he didn't even turn up in the end. No. Nixon. So they just got a festival for nothing. That's amazing. That's awesome. So I read a book recently about the Stasi Poetry Circle. <laughs> it all, all, um, Sounds fun. I know, right? <laughs> Your work and leisure was really tied up in East Germany. So, mm. you know, you would go on holiday with the people you work yeah. with. Sounds awful. But yeah. that's, um, <laughs> and, and, you know, all your leisure activities were bound up with the company that you work for and stuff. And it was the same with the Stasi. And so they would have these um, sort of art circles. And one of them, they had a poetry circle. But the guy who ran it, um, Uwe Berger, I think his name was, he wasn't a member of the party, but he was one of the hundreds of thousands of um, mitarbeiters they called, so the, these unofficial collaborators. Oh, okay. The Stasi. So he would get all the poetry, these young Stasi officers would be writing their poetry in their poetry circle. And then he'd be looking for dissidents among them and feeding it back. And was he looking through the medium of the poetry? Yeah. Oh, so right. he was looking That's for tough, maybe it? dissident uses of meter yeah. or half rhymes. Or just that anything indicated. that basically wasn't socialist <laughs> realism or, or showed any sort of freedom of thought. How or, interesting. Wow. Yeah. Because yeah. they, they did also, they infiltrated um, punk groups. They were very mm -hmm. threatened by punk music when it came in in East Germany. And so the I feel threatened by that still. Sure. Well, they, sure. I mean, they infiltrated everybody. That's the thing about the Stasi. <laughs> and they were the big administrators of any so out of the whole of German history from the Middle Ages to World War Two mm -hmm. there were more written records kept in the 40 years of the German Democratic Republic than the rest of German history put together really yeah wow. there but were, it's all bad poetry it it's mostly <laughs> bad poetry but there were these so when when the war came down and then in January 1990 the people stormed the Stasi headquarters in Leipzig a place called Runden Ecker the round corner which is their offices and they rescued these sacks of, I think it's 15,500 sacks of shredded documents. And there's these people that are called the puzzlers. Or they who work called them the puzzlers. Who piece them back together. Fun. And they've been doing that since 1991. They're still doing it. They're still oh doing it. So there were millions of shredded bits of paper and it will take centuries to put them all back oh together. I just I mean, feel <laughs> like, you know, you've got an old lady in, you know, in Leipzig doing her, um, doing her little jigsaw <laughs> and then she gets a tap on the shoulder. Mrs. <laughs> Schmidt, we have a job for you. Yeah. You heard about the Schwarz canal the no. so in east germany they could pick up western television because obviously it's not far away yeah. <laughs> um but you could be arrested if your tv aerial was pointing west mm. so you had to be a bit careful they, that they eased <laughs> off on that as time went on but there were two east german channels and on one of them there was a program that was on every monday night um and it was called die schwarze canal and what it was it was 20 minutes of clips of west german tv programs with a communist commentary oh. <laughs> what, saying why they were so bad Say why it was so bad i'd watch programs that had a commentary over the top explaining why they were so bad you should I'd get watch... on tw you should get on twitter <laughs> <laughs> it's, just, it's just goggle box isn't it what you described is yeah basically, basically yeah, communist, yeah, yeah. communist goggle box, goggle box. <laughs> yeah like it's like go golf box there had been a program in um west germany called the Rote Optik, which is the, the red viewpoint, so which was sort of slagging off what was happening in East Germany. Mm -hmm. So that wow. was their sort of retort okay. to that, was the Black Channel. Amazing. And also it's called the Black Channel because that was like a plumbing slang for a sewer. Oh, that's clever. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So that's it was brilliant. like a little pun as well. Is the red... Die rote, do you call it? Die rote Optik. The red viewpoint. Is that a joke on rose-tinted spectacles? Like, oh, oh, in the East, they're all seeing, maybe you know. It is, oh, yeah. 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 It's probably not. Do you think they <laughs> came up with the titles before the concepts? I think so. Maybe. Yes. <laughs> you know, the, the BBC had um, studios in nuclear bunkers in the Cold War, so... I, I mean, I, I'll have to rein it in because I could go on forever about nuclear bombs. <laughs> that's my little obsession. But in the um, 
regional seats of government nuclear bunkers, of which there were 12 in the Cold War period in Britain. They were for uh, politicians, for offices of state and things like that. Mm. And each of them would have a BBC studio inside. Really? Yeah. Oh, so you can cool. visit the one, at, there's one at Kelvedon Hatch in Essex, which is open to the public, one at Hack Green in Cheshire, which is, and they, you can see the BBC studio in there. And they have, um, in, in Kelvedon Hatch, I think they have playing the actual BBC broadcast that would have been cool. uh, playing. They yeah. had, yeah. You know, so when you kind of go to the nuclear bunker, like mm-hmm. all your politicians go there or whatever, mm-hmm. all your important people, would they have had to take a BBC sound engineer yep. with them? Because it's going to be quite echoey in those places. Yeah, right? yeah. yeah. So you had a BBC sound engineer and presenters, like heating engineers and, um, you know, electrical engineers and yeah, sort of yeah. various different specialties would need to be in this bunker to keep How it interesting. maintained. So if you were selected, you'd sign the Official Secrets Act, so you wouldn't tell anyone that's so funny because obviously i'm sure you know a lot of bbc sound engineers like i do well and i just yeah i wonder if they all got this job thinking (laughs) well if it all goes south (laughs) at least we can would they these days if that happened do you think there'd be any room in the bunker for podcasters (laughs) (laughs) i I think well i i know i'm not sure how much of this i'm allowed to say because I, oh so I sort of you're got on, told hello. you're on the list yeah I'm, <laughs> I'm not on the list I'm not on the list I promise I'm not on the list but I do know you that they still until do until the week finish yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I do know that they still do drills and that they still uh, take a BBC presenter which BBC presenter would you take to your nuclear bunker <laughs> BBC it has to be BBC yeah um I'd probably go for Hugh Edwards would you I, I just want stability and continuity and he provides it that's interesting. I was thinking, does Dion Dublin do like houses oh, yeah. under the hammer or something? He could do a great guide to the bunker, couldn't yeah. he? <laughs> How to improve your bunker? Look here, situation. that's um, that's a solid wall. That's not. Yeah, that's a solid wall too. Actually. <laughs> Lots of solid walls in here. Very few partition walls. Uh, <laughs> I got one fact about Agadu, just because Angela sure, mentioned it earlier. Sure, yeah. So uh, the singer of Agadu, Black Lace, mm-hmm. Black Lace, right? You're right. Yeah. And the guy is Dean Michael. So he was sent to prison in 2016. Was not, he? Not for the dance. Uh, <laughs> and not for the usual. He was it, pushing pineapples, wasn't he? <laughs> shaking trees. Grinding <laughs> coffee. Um. Uh, it was for benefits fraud. Um, <laughs> 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 it doesn't come up in the song anyway. <laughs> but he was in for 10 weeks. He cl- basically, he claimed he, he had claimed he couldn't walk, but then um, okay. he, was do- he was also doing gigs on stage where he was dancing very vigorously. So they uh, thought, that's not silly. right. What an idiot. I know. Well, he got put away for 10 weeks. And anyway, he says... After he came out, he said that while he was in prison, he got through the tough times by leading a giant conga <laughs> of prisoners. And that's how they all escaped, didn't yeah. they? <laughs> that's so funny. He said, at night, the entire wing was singing in chorus, Agadoo, doo. <laughs> those days when dances had really clear instructions yeah. like I'm not one of nature's dancers <laughs> so when they tell me what to do that Superman that yeah. was Black Lace as well wasn't it yeah. I right. knew what to do then that I was why the we all loved of... the Macarena exactly we had you knew the what to do um, the, uh, there was a movie in 1984 which I'm sure you all know called Footloose Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and it's a story of a teenager who goes to a small town where dancing has been banned yeah. by the local government so that's why I'm talking about that <laughs> uh, one of the people who was in this movie was the actor Kevin Bacon okay okay. he was 24 at the time um, but to get himself into the role he um, enrolled into a local high school pretending to be a 17 year old that's really creepy <laughs> isn't that amazing wow so was the, he uh, rumbled um, he was not rumbled so how old was he at the time sorry he was 24 
and he was pretending to be 17. The principal apparently knew about it, but no one else knew about it at all. Oh, my God. And, and the, he fell in love with Drew Barrymore at the end. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the amazing thing is he got really badly bullied. Really? So oh. He went to the school and he thought, like, his, his character was that he'd come from the city and he was in, like, a small town school. And so he was wearing clothes that he imagined a 17-year-old would wear if they'd come from, you know, Philadelphia and gone into a school. Yeah. Um, but obviously he looked very different than all the other kids. And so they just really, really bullied him quite badly oh, uh, until one of the one of the kids kind of came and sort of took him under his wing and apparently that's kind of something that happens in the movie although i haven't seen it so i don't know i don't believe that never been kissed was not just entirely based on this story i mean that is the is whole it? plot i don't know yeah. it's never been kissed someone goes back into a school guys drew barrymore she's about 24 she's a reporter she disguises herself a 17 year old to go oh, back into a school she? where she gets badly bullied until someone takes her under their wing was it What's... made after 1984 it certainly was yeah oh. Oh, yeah. It's 21 Jump Street. That's that as well, isn't it? Is it is 21 it? Jump Street? Or, or, uh, yeah, yeah they, they the, the cops that. go back to school. Yeah. All I yeah, know is, what? is that the one where there's a meme where he goes, how do you do fellow kids? It's what, yeah. That's <laughs> clearly what the I meme only know the meme. That, the meme must come from that. Um, very weirdly, I've got something about band or official dancers in the USA. Okay. So, that, and it, was, it relates to Hollywood as well. Right. So, 24 US states have passed laws designating square dancing the official state folk dance, right? I thought you were going to say it was banned. No, no, no. <laughs> Far from it. Far from it. It's, there have been so many attempts to, to make um, square dancing uh, the national folk dance. And people keep saying at the national level, look, this isn't not really a national thing we don't you know there's lots <laughs> going care. on we don't care so there are other ones so like uh, hawaii has the hula obviously oh, yeah. um kentucky has clogging and not, <laughs> not, didn't look into very much and, but because north carolina has the carolina shag and that's the official oh, the shag. dance oh, yeah. and there is a 1989 movie starring bridget fonda which is simply called shag and it's, <laughs> it's about four high school students on a road trip i was really disappointed yeah, when i went to that movie i was so expecting a documentary about carpets and... <laughs> <laughs> i went as a bird lover <laughs> <laughs> it culminates in a a shagging contest basically <laughs> a shag dancing contest is the dance anything like a shag I mean, dance. No, it depends no, how you no. do it. It's, yeah, it's <laughs> any dance can be, can't it? <laughs> okay, it is time for fact number two, and that is Andes. My fact is that in the seventh century, one of the most impressive things you could be buried with was a folding chair. Okay. Wow. Mm, that was hot, hot stuff. Is that because they were from the future? Mm. Uh, meant you had a time machine it was not because of that (laughs) but that would have been usually it's like things that you're buried with is for use in the afterlife maybe you know might want a nice sit down (laughs) (laughs) always well the woman that was found with was in her they think was in her 40s or 50s and as a woman in her 40s I can relate to carrying a chair around yeah yeah, this is the thing The, the they're they're normally found in women's graves they're kind of grave goods and about 30 medieval grave sites have been found with chair burials as they call them this latest one it's quite a recent find it dates back to about 600 ad and it's kind of it might not be that they were very very powerful wealthy people Mm. in life it's kind of because they're they're often buried with lots of humble grave goods as well but they seem to be kind of spiritually significant you know having a folding chair it seems yeah like a wise woman kind of thing exactly a healer or a magician I think I've misunderstood so they were buried sat on the chair 
Uh, no. no, I think no. the chair was just included. It was just in included the, yeah, like, yeah, as yeah. their favourite chair. <laughs> yeah. I would have had this Brilliant. image of them being <laughs> lowered on a chair into no, the ground. Right. There's, the, there's an archaeologist called Bettina Pfaff, and who, she thinks that the, these uh, women, it's mostly women, belong to a kind of spiritual elite. Oh, yeah. So in life, they would sit on the chair whilst reading someone's palm or something, presumably. Maybe, yeah, or leading a ceremony or something, and, and cool. they were buried with it. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. And where was this? In Europe? Uh, lots Across lots of Europe, yeah. Germany especially, I think. Yeah. Quite a lot in Germany. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, big deal. So I did a series called You Can't Take It With You on Radio really? 4, which is about... Well, it was. It started off being about when my dad died, we kept we went a bit mad putting stuff in the coffin <laughs> and to the point we thought we might have to take him out. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> just, just so much, but just filled it up with stuff. Oh. And, um, and so I got really into sort of reading about grave goods a bit and... I, one of my favourite things I found was a website where you can buy a coffin with drawers in so that you can put the goods for the person in the drawers. That's... And my favourite line on this website says, if you do choose to bury the deceased with some personal items, it's important to remember that these are items you will not get back. Mm, <laughs> that is useful. They always put their car keys in Wow. <laughs> That's, That's amazing. What, but... I didn't even think that was like a modern thing to, mm. to put grave goods no. in. I'd never the drawers, across the drawers at the bottom, sort of under the body? Sort of under the, they... Yeah, I think it's a bit cruel because if they do go to an afterlife, have they got access to those drawers? Yeah, because <laughs> I've got my favourite things, yeah. but I can't get them. Because <laughs> yeah. I think it started with when when my dad died. He had his head was on this sort of lacy pillow. It just wasn't right. My dad yeah. ran a sex shop for a living. It didn't look right. <laughs> so, that sounds like it could fit quite so, well to a sex well, shop. My, my his girlfriend replaced it with some inflatable breasts. <laughs> wow, so that's that what, is yeah. brilliant. Yeah, <laughs> imagine imagine the archaeologists in such a that. <laughs> and they'll jump to such conclusions sort about of, our entire society. Sort of sex wizard, we think. <laughs> well, actually, he was cremated. So, oh. Um, oh. and that's the other thing. So, I started asking people a about what they would want buried with them, and b what they would put in my coffin. Because mm. I just thought well, you don't get a say, do you? At that oh, point, yeah. someone else is deciding what yeah. you want mm. to take with you. And of course. Uh, most people I spoke to were going to be cremated and so everyone was saying popcorn kernels yeah. <laughs> that's what I'm going to fill my coffin with that's, quite, that's fun for a little fireworks yeah there, fireworks or cannabis <laughs> something just to make it a bit more fun so yeah chairs mm. folding chairs they go back a long way sure do which so makes far. sense actually there's a book um, on chairs by a guy called Ritold Ribsinski and I always come back to this in my research. It's such a good book. But he says he thinks the oldest chairs ever will have been folding. It's a, cra- it's a cracker, I'm telling you. I, I disagree with Mr. Rubs- sure. Rubsinski or whatever he was called. You don't think the oldest chairs are folding? I don't really, because I think the oldest chair would be literally just a box. And I think it requires something extra to... I think once you've made it into... Once you've used some human skill rather than just sitting on a flat rock mm, and claiming okay. it's a chair. Because it, it would be nomadic societies. So I think... I think the oldest evidence of folding chairs we have might be ancient Mongolian societies mm. um, who were nomadic. So the important people would take a chair with them. And uh, that's... That's and, great. And they looked exactly like those beach chairs that you get, you know, that old people sit in on beaches. Uh, <laughs> there are eight folding stools in the British Museum. Wow! Uh, yeah, and the earliest what one. What for? Tr- just people to sit in. <laughs> <laughs> Such a good point because they have those people who sit and make mm. sure you don't steal anything, don't you? And they yeah. sit on little stools. Also, very old those people. <laughs> a lot of the time. Yeah. Uh, the oldest one they have is from the 18th dynasty of Egypt, which is um, 1500 BC to, wow. to 1300 BC. So wow. that's pretty old. Really? 
And how? What do they look like? How how easily foldable are they? Or they no? just look like a, an X mm-hmm. with a pivot in the, where the two lines of the X meet, and mm-hmm. then a little bit of cloth on the top. Although the cloth has has rotted away because that's yeah, yeah. perished. Yeah. Yeah. So easier than a beach deck chair, which I still can't do. No, those yeah. stripy beach deck chairs are just there to torment me. They're a struggle. It's like a Brompton. Your fingers won't survive. Um, lots of sort of folding chairs were big for lots of people. So I mean, James, you mentioned the Egyptian ones. Tutankhamun mm. had one. Tutankhamun had a couple in his tomb, I think. One uh, was ebony and ivory. Pretty cool. Bishops had a folding chair in medieval times. That was a yeah. huge deal. They would. Um, there was a thing called the cathedra, which is the bishop's official throne. Mm-hmm. But if you were travelling around your diocese or whatever it was you'd have to have a traveling a travel mini- throne a tra- basically tra- <laughs> pretty much that's amazing a traveling cathedral yeah yeah travel throne <laughs> speaking of religion and chairs not a folding chair as such but is it a myth the papal chair the hole in the papal chair that is a myth that I is think. a myth the whole oh, well. do you mean the whole, for the, the, whole so the whole pope joan thing isn't it like so mm. pope joan the supposed lady ninth pope. century lady pope yeah. who probably didn't exist and that they then the papal chair had a hole in it so that their genitalia could be inspected from beneath to check they weren't a woman. And then they'd shout, there'd be some cry when they're like, he's got knackers in Latin. (laughs) And then we can continue with the Catholic Church. It's fine. Yeah, I think that definitely is a myth. It's a myth. Yeah, yeah. Uh, But it it does happen these days for real. (laughs) It does. There seemed to be a spate of people getting their testicles trapped in folding chairs. (laughs) Um, I didn't even have some of my eyes water. I I didn't read about any popes doing it. Maybe there's just didn't oh make the God. news it's so common uh, well i look because i thought i think i was just looking at chair accidents um and i came across uh like a, just a 60 something year old man in 2018 who was <laughs> sitting in his folding chair which had little slats before we got oh in the shower no. um and they fell through and <laughs> couldn't get them out I had to have the fire brigade come is that because they his... do they do hang lower in older men don't they well, yeah it's interesting you say that because all the stories i found which were then i think i found five different stories they were all older men yeah, so. yeah. The rubber perishes as time goes on, <laughs> and there's a certain like a worn-out slinky. Yeah, there's more, there's more give in the system. Well, yeah, it's tough. There are some great photos there if you want to look. <laughs> what are the photos of? Um, it's mostly um, like there's a man lying on a stretcher, but he's obviously still sitting on the chair. <laughs> Actually, <laughs> if you go to Blackpool, you know those cutouts where you can put your head in? There's one of those, but it's <laughs> a dangling pair of testicles stuck through a deck chair. They have to have oh the fire brigade on hand at all times. Because it's scary when the fire brigade turn up because, the, yeah. you know, they've got things like angle grinders and they've got they've got all sorts of big kit, yeah. haven't they? And I yeah. de- it doesn't really call for the fire brigade, I would have thought. It calls for a, a delicate... Surgeon. A massaging, <laughs> yeah. some oils... They have to cut the chairs. I think there's sometimes no mass- level of massaging you can do, which is a bit frightening. Yeah. And I, I have to say, I respected the fire. Uh, it was firemen, two firemen so much. In one photo I saw who had such grave looks on their faces, which I imagine took a huge amount of effort. <laughs> to free someone's testicles from a chair. We, we used to call it, so I used to be a nurse, and you'd call it the nurse's mask, or the, the, the and I think oh, firemen have the same thing. Because really? sometimes you'd see things that were funny or that were horrific. And you can't, you know, you can't take a bandage off and go, oh my God. You know, you have to just sort of maintain this kind wow. of oh, nurse's, nurse's mask, mask, they call it. Yeah. And is it a sort of a creepy grin? Or... <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Wow. Do you know who the first person to use the word deck chair was? Ooh, We're going to no. say invented the word deck chair. But... Famous person. Famous person. So it's gettable. 
Oh no. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, I'd be astonished if when you guys when, used the when, word actually. Give us a, yeah, give uh, us a 1880s uh, author of a children's book. Arthur oh, Rannells. Oh, Lewis Carroll? Uh, um, <laughs> Roald Dahl. No, that's not 1880s. 1880s. Oh, oh, oh uh, Kenneth Graham, who wrote The Wind in the Willows. Ooh. All good one, but no. British? Uh, British, yeah. British children's author, 1880s. 1880s. Um, it's, it's tough. Robert Louis Stevenson. Like because no. he wrote the pirate books, yeah, you know, yeah. But think of that surname, Stevenson, and think of what else Stevensons are related to. That Stevenson's rocket, rocket. was the first train. Oh, and think uh, of Nesbit. Oh, well, <laughs> Nesbit. Uh, yay! I got my place. God, that was good. That was stunningly good. Uh, e Nesbit, who wrote the Railway Children, um, deck chair was first used in that book. No. Also, great clue giving from Stevenson. I mean, that was yeah, a, that know, was it that was a great was... throw and a great catch. I think is what I enjoyed that um, very much. It was good being part of the audience <laughs> on either side. Just... Um, some other words invented by E Nesbit in the OED: uh, brecky, snarky, and zooming. Wow. Ooh. Zooming as in moving around quickly. Yeah, yeah. My dog gets the zoomies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Zooming, yeah. Wait, what does the dog do? It's, a, it's, it's called a zoomies. Cool. The zoomies? <laughs> yeah, yeah, she gets on zoom and calls my mum. No, you know when dogs just get really hyper excited, they just run yeah, about. Yeah, yeah. Like, oh, they call yeah. it the zoomies. Is that what the zoomies is? Yeah. I thought the zoomies was a drug thing. I might also be that. I don't <laughs> know. It was drug paraphernalia, Your Honour. And, um, wow. <laughs> Do you know they banned the deck chairs on Bournemouth Beach? Did they? Um, I think it was last year. There was so, or oh, they stopped renting them out. And then you got you didn't get arrested <laughs> okay, okay, if you so bought your own deck chair. What an immediate climb down from a promising little hill. Yeah. <laughs> um, they stopped it's a molehill now. Was it? It was a government thing or a council thing? They, it was a council thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because they were afraid they were going to be used as weapons. Um, really? I, I couldn't really what? find any evidence that they have been used as weapons. It feels like a pretext, so, doesn't it? Uh, it does, but for what? Why? Why didn't they want to rent them out? It lost the council about 200 grand that year. Really? From renting How, them out. Were they thinking that you'd go around and sort of snap old men's testicles <laughs> off? <of them? laughs> I suppose chairs as weapons is... Like, every it's time possible. there's any sort of football oh, violence yeah. or whatever, it's always... Plastic chairs, chairs being thrown yeah. around, isn't it? Oh, it's yeah. plastic. And in wrestling, of course, they have the steel chair, yes. but it's very rarely the deck chair. <laughs> <laughs> he's getting out the deck chair. Oh, oh, he's still getting it out. Once <laughs> it's out, you're in trouble. Um, you talked about Bournemouth, um, Anna, I think. Mm. There was an article in 2021 in The Telegraph about deck chairs in Scarborough. Uh, this was a 58-year-old woman called Dawn Avison who runs the last remaining deck chair concession in Scarborough. Mm. Um, she's got what they described as a deep mahogany tan and apparently locally it's known as Scarborough Rust (laughs) 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 which is if you work on the beach that's your tan that you have Uh, and she said that last summer former education secretary Gavin Williamson sat down on one of her deck chairs for a selfie and then left without paying (gasps) what and now he's a minister without portfolio so I think that just says wow he's a man who I genuinely don't think could put up a deck chair (laughs) <laughs> Gavin Williamson. I don't no. think any of them could. Given <laughs> <the> current cabinet. <laughs> Can I tell you one bit of folding chair news? Yeah. Um, are you guys familiar with Sydney Joe, the 27-year-old TikToker? Of no. course. Don't, there you go. I knew you would be. 27-year-old TikToker. I don't know anything about TikTok, but that feels old. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, she's appealing to um, the youth. So she got stuck in a folding chair 
um, which is kind of amazing. There's a picture and she's sort of got her body through the middle of it, folded around her, and she had to be removed by the fire brigade. I think this was last year. And they used Jaws of Life, which are the hydraulic oh. um, things that you use to extract people from crashed cars and stuff, Crikey. which sounds quite frightening. And wow. the reason that she'd got stuck is because she has a $199 per minute channel where she gets stuck in things and then frees herself. And it went wrong. Oh, oh, what do you mean? Is like people pay to is this watch a, her escape from stuff? Yes, yeah. I think I think we're all asking: Is this a sex thing? Yeah, yeah. Well, it, look, it says it's a fetish channel. That sounds like right. a that's, that's a pretty yeah. sexy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not down with all the lingo, but I think that is a sex thing. Well, that's like, God, the poor bloody fire brigade in her local area. Hello, oh, uh, it's me, it's it's me again. Yes. Uh, no, a washing machine this time. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, it's time for fact number three, and that is my fact. My fact this week is that most people dislike kale before they're even born. That's wow. that's how long-lasting the loathing is. Um, this is this weird thing that came out recently, and it's quite a small study, uh, but it looked at ultrasound scans in seventy about seventy pregnant women in the late in the third trimester. And then they got the pregnant women to take capsules of either powdered kale or powdered carrot or nothing. And then they looked at what the fetuses were doing. And the fetuses made the facial expressions that, well, when they had the kale, they made the facial expression they make when they cry. And Mm. an unmistakable kind of wince of displeasure <laughs> and we're not I mean we're not 100% that's what a fetus means when it makes that face but come on it's, it's, it feels like ethical issues here right if you're making your fetus <laughs> unhappy making it cry you're right God, are there ethical issues with feeding people kale that's every <laughs> <laughs> every parent who makes their kid eat vegetables so at what point is the baby crying because obviously the mother's eating the takes a capsule so they're waiting for it to yeah. how yeah. do they know that that at that I, point that th- the baby's receiving the kale I think it was they waited 20 minutes right. yeah. and I think by that point whatever you've eaten has filtered through to the amniotic fluid right. whatever okay. it is so the flavour they know the chemical is in there at that point right. yeah. and they can compare it to the people who've had the carrot or the nothing and see at an exact moment when their expression changes but and it might it might be a, a benevolent thing actually because if theoretically you eat lots of kale in pregnancy you might then be able to stop your child hating kale in yeah uh, outside that pregnancy that <laughs> in childhood I as think we call it's the it's it's possible that you can prevent fussy eating basically by just exposing the child to as many flavors as possible early on right. it's a bit less unfamiliar later on when you're giving them whatever for the first time obviously mm. the problem being that you'll feel so ill for most of your pregnancy that you will only eat bread and biscuits yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, i think my mum must have mostly eaten refined sugar during her <laughs> but they actually like the carrots which i find quite surprising i know carrots are sweet everyone always says but they're no whisper bar, are they? But, <laughs> but if you've never had a whisper bar, if no, all you've got I mean, to compare it to is kale, then carrots are pretty good. Yeah. You're absolutely right. Yeah, they did a little sort of smile, uh, sort of fetus equivalent of a smile when they tasted the carrot uh, twice as often as when they tasted nothing. I wonder kale. if that's because the carrots help them see in the dark and then yeah. something like, oh, I can see where I am. Oh, oh this is gross. <laughs> Um, but yeah, it is. Yeah. I, I don't think kale's that bad. I think I can't taste bitterness as much as some people. It's all right. I ha- I had some um, in research for this podcast when I knew we were going to be talking yeah, about kale. You. I went and okay. had a, uh, sort of 
salad and um <laughs> then, as in you searched out the kale because yeah, I, I, I have kale in the house anyway right. but so i i, I never do no no oh, no I, I i went to a i went to a, kale a cafe and said, <laughs> i'll have that kale salad please and yeah. um I was, ple- I was pleasantly surprised yeah, yeah. i thought it was horrible and uh i don't mind it i feel yeah. like kale was only invented sort of about 10 years ago i, I mean definitely yeah. i wasn't eating kale in my childhood I, was eating cabbage it was pretty much 2012 when it kicked off 2011 2012 and before that literally no one ate it i think kale was invented in 1976 um the year i was invented (laughs) you had a twin kale yeah um this was i didn't eat it in the womb (laughs) unlike my other twin (laughs) Uh, this was new york times food critic mimi sheraton in fact she was the first female restaurant critic at the new york times uh, and she wrote about how great kale was. And at that time, literally no one ate kale in the United States, uh, but she helped to make it popular. Uh, but they interviewed her a couple of years ago and she said she really regrets now making kale popular. Um, she <laughs> says, well, she says she read through the article and she realizes that in those days she liked kale because it was cooked properly. And in these days, people serve it raw. They kind of roast it. Like I often have roasted kale, which is, you know, it does taste quite burnt and <laughs> the way I, I cook it anyway. Do you but... like make kale crisps? I've tried yeah. so many times to do that. Yeah. And I, every time I've ended up with just burnt kale. I think um, that's just how it's meant to be. You've just been confused by the word crisps and the fact right, that... Right, yeah. I thought <laughs> it was going to come out like Golden Wonder. Yeah. <laughs> All the recipes claim it's heaven. It's kind of okay. It's kind of raw yeah. kale. But um, Mimi Sheridan says, if you eat it like you're supposed to eat it, which is like a winter vegetable, like you might have cabbage or something like that quite often boiled or in stews or stuff like that then it's really delicious but these days the way that people cook it is wrong and she feels quite responsible for that 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 is the one thing i think my nan might have got it right you do have to boil it for three days yeah yeah Yeah. oh well do you know what you're supposed to do if you don't have three days you're supposed to massage it which Mm. i did not know but um this and this completely transforms kale a it stops it making you fart and B, it stops it tasting bitter. And this is if you, before you do anything to it, you just give if it... If you massage it with a whisper bar. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, it's because it has a lot of sugars that don't get broken down until they're way through your digestive system and your large intestine. So A, then that gives you lots of bad gas. And B, that means that on the way through, you're not tasting those sugars. And so okay. it tastes bitter. But if you like massage, and I meant to try this, but I didn't do the first time research, but I'm sure people were right in. But yeah, if you squeeze it like properly, just like you're rubbing wow. it before so, you cook it, then it tastes much sweeter I'll and much nicer. That. So not with oil or anything, just with... With your fingers, I mean, I'm yeah. giving it a full on massage. Yeah. <laughs> just, Light some candles. Yeah. 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 Get in the mood. <laughs> some romantic music on. <laughs> I've got to say, I, did, I also thought it had been invented in 2012 and I didn't mm. realise it was really huge in previous centuries, especially in Scotland. And mm. I, I didn't know this at all. And it was because it uh, can can grow for, for a start in quite tough northern climates, which is a good thing. And also it grows over the January to April period, which got called the Hungry Gap, which is where lots of previous mm. crops might be running a bit low. And so it's a very useful staple food. And there's all this Scots dialect about kale. All these words like uh, a kale bell is a dinner bell. Uh, kale was used interchangeably with food, as in kale really? might just mean yeah, food. Yeah. Um, and there were sayings as well. Like, have you he- have you heard uh, "called kale het again"? Called kale het again. again. Yeah. No. What does that uh, mean? No. Cold kale heated up again. Oh. Oh, it's oh. that simple. I thought it's like a hidden meaning what is, in there. No, no, what, does, what does that mean as a saying? Oh, okay. Oh, I see. Oh, I see. Um, it means that um, he's uh, washed up. Yeah. Know? Later mm. in life, you've mm. kind of come. It's a comeback almost. 
that's nice. That's much more positive than the real meaning, which is that I've heard this story dozens of times before. Uh, this is oh, a cold yeah, kale yeah, head yeah. again. Uh, yeah. uh, oh, God, that's useful. Start using that constantly. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of my relations. Um, I'll give him his kale through the reek. Through the reek. What is a reek? Through the reek. Well, old reek is... Through the nose, through the nose. Okay. Yeah. Cause it yeah, because reek means uh, smell, smell, right? Yeah. Okay. I'll give it, it, it means what you <laughs> say when someone farts. As if like someone's it. farted in the room, you don't know who it is, and you're like, oh, I'll give some old kill through the reek. <laughs> All lovely guesses. Uh, so reek is smoke. Uh, and basically, smoke. I'll give him his kale through the reek. It means I'm going to treat someone badly. I'm going to hand you your kale for dinner through the smoke of the fire so it tastes gross. Oh, oh so it's roasted okay. instead of massage. <laughs> exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. They had The word for garden was kale yard, really, wasn't it? For yeah, a, a small vegetable yeah. garden, it was kale yard from about the 14th century. And then it morphed into kale yard fiction, which I was not familiar with. But this is... Um, well, can you guess what kale yard fiction is? It makes you cry. It makes you cry. Um, <laughs> it makes you grimace. Yeah. It's, it's sob stories. It makes you do all of those things. Yeah, written it... since 2012. Uh... <laughs> it makes you fart. <laughs> I, I don't know if it does any of those things. Uh, it's just a derogatory term for sort of a really bucolic, overly sentimentalised, rural, rustic fiction because, you know, it's like old-fashioned kale yards okay. in Scotland. And J.M. Barry was accused of being a kale yard writer for his books like Old Licht Idyls. <laughs> um, I read an article on uh, Atlas Obscura uh, about Halloween in Scotland. Ooh. I don't know if you saw this, about how kale was quite popular in that time uh, because it was kind of the growing season of kale like you said it was more of a winter vegetable um, but apparently youths would blindfold each other pull stalks of kale from the ground and then analyze their length and girth uh, and the amount of dirt caked onto them and it would tell them what kind of partner they'll marry oh, why no. do they have to be blindfolded I don't know <laughs> Because then you can Halloween. see, oh, I think I'll marry that uh, tall, oh, that girthy, yeah, yeah. uh, non-soiled. <laughs> <laughs> no one wants a soiled yeah. partner. But I guess that's what you do then. You go around the bars looking for a soiled, girthy woman. <laughs> the first when you said kale used in Halloween, I thought it was going to be the world's most disappointing trick or treat. Yeah. <laughs> Have you never bobbed for kale? Then, for, uh, I in the, when I was a, a young girl in the 80s, like we didn't, trick or treat wasn't a thing, really. Mm. And when it started to come in, I remember my mum there was a ring at the doorbell and these two kids said trick or treat and my mum didn't know what it meant at all it just hadn't been a thing here and so my mum went oh treat took two of their sweets to shut the door <laughs> 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 Amazing. Well, that's the choice you would make that's great uh, I was really disappointed to read that kale is very high in vitamins K, A and E but not L. <laughs> <laughs> well, is there, is there a is bit of L? L? Well, no, I don't think so. There is isn't. <laughs> there, there's a guy called Dr. W. Nakahara who in the 1930s um, discovered something that he called vitamin L, but it turned out to be a couple of chemicals which <laughs> are not vitamins at all and which aren't in kale. Uh, but he called it vitamin L because he thought it was good for lactation um, oh. in rats in particular. But it turns out that, yeah, not only is it not a vitamin it's not particularly good for lactation either <laughs> but it you know it is a thing vitamin so l it's he's vitamin a... l but the l stands for lie yes yeah. exactly. <laughs> uh, but 130 grams of kale contains 1000 percent of your daily vitamin k nutrition 
Wow. 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 I mean, get really, what does Vitamin so K do? You get stiff bones, really. Stiff bones. <laughs> <laughs> do make sure to try and get your bones as stiff as you possibly can. I hear Vitamin K, it just feels like a euphemism for ketamine. Yes, it, it does. does doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. How much kale was that? Um, 130 grams, not much. That's quite, yeah. I was about it's to say the opposite. I said it's a decent serving. Yeah. Yeah. That's it's quite light, isn't it, kale? Oh, yeah. It's light, I suppose. It's light. Truth is, it's a thousand percent. So you're, <laughs> you only need 13 yeah. grams. So. Oh, yeah. That's um, uh, but people who take blood thinners should be careful with kale because if you have too much vitamin K, uh, it can be a problem with your clotting of your blood. Mm. And also if you have iodine deficiency and you eat an enormous amount of kale, you can get hypothyroidism uh, where you make too oh. much of your thyroid hormone. You can get a nice goiter on your mm. neck. An 88-year-old woman got severe hypothyroidism and went into a coma <gasps> after oh, eating, no. but she was eating between 1 and 1.5 kilograms a day of what? raw. What? This is actually wow. bok choy, which has, has a similar oh, property. Yeah. Raw oh, bok choy yeah. for several months. But that's more than 10,000% <laughs> of her daily vitamin K allowance. <laughs> So she was overdoing it. And how can you physically eat that much bok choy? It's really light. And yeah. Very yeah. light, yeah. She can't have been doing much else with her days. I suppose yeah. at 88. It's like a panda are. just <laughs> with bamboo, just all day, just chewing on bok choy. Yeah. That's a hipster panda, isn't it? Just <laughs> sits there on the bok choy. <laughs> Okay, it is time for our final fact of the week, and that is James's fact. Okay, my fact this week is that Goldfinger was such a difficult boss that he once fired someone who didn't even work for him. <laughs> now, you don't want fictional Goldfinger. Goldfinger. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, no, I deliberately missed out um, the start yeah. of this fact, which is um, brutalist architect Erno Goldfinger uh, did all this stuff. Uh, we knew Angela was coming on the show, and we know you like a bit of brutalism architecture. Uh, and so I dug out my book, Concretopia. Uh, which was written by our good friend John Grindrod, all about brutalist architecture. And I thought I'd find some facts about Erno Goldfinger. And he was a very angry man, apparently. <laughs> yeah. Maybe he was stuck in a deck chair. Yes. He'd <laughs> um, have he... to be a big deck chair. He was a big man. Was he? Yeah. Uh... He used to show his strength to the people in his office by... Uh, punch using a hole punch to punch through stacks of card that no one else was strong enough to do <laughs> and that was how that was his really? way of going don't mess with me look how many wow. bits of card i can punch That's a hole the through. threat there i can punch a hole through your torso i mean it's weird that in world's strongest man they don't have this event <laughs> right? they're missing a trick it'd be great because like a, an office base world's strongest man would be very funny yeah and fun so and uh, goldfinger people especially who live in london will know some of his buildings trellick tower I think is his most famous one, uh, which is only because I used to live near that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, he did a lot of these concrete buildings, very popular for about three years, but they're all <laughs> they're all still here. Uh, and uh, John Grindrod, who wrote this book, Concretopia, he spoke to James Dunnett, who worked with Erno Goldfinger, uh, and then Dunnett sort of related this story that he was a very fiery character, and whenever you came to work for Goldfinger, a lot of people only lasted less than a day, and they'd be fired at lunchtime, and apparently one day, 
um, Goldfinger was in one of his rages, you know, probably he didn't get his hole punch working properly. <laughs> and he stormed through a reception and there was a guy just waiting in reception and he just went, you're fired! And the guy had to leave and he didn't even work for them. Just that's visiting. so funny. Yeah. He apparently, between 1954 and 1955, in that year, he lost 26 employees in a small office, um, either through sacking them or they left because of stress. That Amazing. was just in one wow. year. Yeah. And you know, obviously, the, the actual Ian Fleming Goldfinger connection with Goldfinger. No, go on. So um, Ian Fleming named the character Goldfinger after Erno Goldfinger. So Erno Goldfinger, the architect, was married to Isabel Blackwell, Blackwell from, yeah. Yeah, from Cross and Blackwell family. And her cousin played golf with Ian Fleming. And the family all hated Erno Goldfinger because he was so mean and nasty. <laughs> and um, And... Ian Fleming didn't like him because he'd demolished some houses in Hampstead to build the Willow Avenue, is it? Willow Road. The two Willow Road. His, two Willow, his yeah, house, his house wasn't yeah, it? Yeah. in Hampstead. And so Ian Fleming was angry that he'd demolished these cottages that had been there before. Mm-hmm. And so that's why he called him Goldfinger. And Erno Goldfinger sort of got his lawyers involved to sort of try and stop it. And Ian Fleming suggested that what he would be prepared to do was put a slip in every copy of the book that said, actually, his name is Gold Prick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, but in the end, they settled and it was fine. Didn't and they settle because Ian said, OK, I'll use Alric Goldfinger, as in his first name, in every mention of him in the book. To clarify the Yeah, he did it's do that. It's nothing to do with you. It's a complete coincidence. It was... The story doesn't reflect very well on Ian Fleming, I think, because yeah. between the destruction of these cottages in Hampstead and the writing of the book, I think it was about 20 years. Mm. It's a yeah. long, I think it's a long grudge that was held. Well, the thing is with Fleming is, so Piers Fletcher, who's the producer of QI, he says he knows someone called Scaramanga. And <laughs> this guy called Scaramanga, his father went to school with Ian Fleming right and I've met and I don't know if you've met um, Blofeld the Henry, cricket Henry yeah. Blofeld the cricket commentator surely that character is not based on the cricket commentator Blofeld no, but it's I ba- can't see any similarities it's based on his father apparently oh, and according to Blowers he says that they went to the same club and mm-hmm. Fleming saw the name in the in the club list and stuff like that we're not quite sure but basically I mean, Ian Fleming just knew so many people with amazing names. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Isn't that incredible? Because I looked at all my Facebook friends yeah. yesterday to see if any of my friends had good enough names to be Bond villains, and none of them do. Like, oh. literally, I don't have a single friend who has a funny surname. But the settlement they came to was that the publisher would pay Goldfinger's, I think, some of his legal costs, and they would also provide six copies of the book. <laughs> <laughs> that's all right then as long as i've got six copies yeah, of the book me off i don't mind and then, but i think it probably didn't pay off for goldfinger in the end because for years afterwards or for years after the movie came out the james bond film people would ring him up and do a sean connery voice and say goldfinger this is 007 oh yeah well you shouldn't have made your address so public with this famous <laughs> yeah. house you built that's true yeah he was a lifelong marxist as well and he used to yeah. sell um he had like art sales for him and his wife uh, used to hold these art sales to raise money for the Red Army. Oh, and, did they? Um, wow. Yeah, and would, were friends with, I think Barbara Hepworth used to sell stuff with him and, yeah. I guess his his kind of architecture, brutalist architecture, gets associated with left-wing ideology and I think the anti-brutalism movement uh, of saying, we really hate these buildings, they're so ugly, can we get some more classical Roman stuff up, please, uh, is more associated with conservative hypes. Yeah. Um, it's very Eastern Bloc. 
the uh, yeah. the concrete it puts, exposed. It puts the block in Eastern Bloc, let's <laughs> face Very it. Very strong. It's that function over form, isn't it? The yeah. whole idea of mm. modernist um, showing your working. Yeah. Sort of, which I think is beautiful. I have a, a concrete wedding ring. Um, and a concrete really? engagement ring. I'm showing you this. That's my concrete engagement ring, which oh I'm just showing you. God. It's oh. like a square of concrete. And that is my concrete wedding ring. My husband has one the same. And it's the aggregate is pebbles from Brighton Beach because we live in Brighton. Oh. And so, so yeah, so I'm a little cool. obsessed with concrete Amazing. as a medium. It's the most attractive I've ever seen concrete be, actually, <laughs> I have to say. Well, I've me. got a little theory about that. I wrote an article about this in The Independent a little while ago um, about this idea of, um, you know, like, I was going to say Prince Charles, King Charles, mm-hmm. or as Dara O'Brien keeps calling him Mock the Week, King Prince Charles, which I think is... He obviously spoke out against brutalist architecture quite a lot. He described the National Theatre as a something like a clever way of disguising a nuclear power station in the centre of London or something mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. Uh, and the monstrous carbuncles and all of that. But my theory is that if we're sort of triggered by nostalgia, human beings, you know, about things that make us think about home. And yeah. if you grew up in Buckingham Palace, then yes, the National Theatre is going to look quite ugly. But if you grew up like I did on an estate, you know, where there's lots of concrete about concrete subways, concrete, then those buildings make me feel nostalgic and warm. Yeah. And, you know, so it's all relative. Yeah. Like, for example, Welbeck Street Car Park was a famous brutalist structure in, in Soho just, and that got demolished a few mm. years ago. That beautiful sort oh, of... I was going to say. Like, oh, yeah, I go past it all the time. I clearly anymore, don't. You know? yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sort of looks like they pour concrete into a beehive, that kind of sort of tessellated, beautiful right. structure. Yeah. And they knocked Ooh. it down. But I just think, well, where's the difference there? Like, people will preserve, say, old coaching inns yeah. that because Charles I stayed there once or whatever. We go, well, who parked their car in that car park? I bet a load of really famous people did because yeah. of You've where it is in Soho. You've got to get the but, blue you know, This down. idea that, that, that things that seem modern to us and ugly, well, in the future, we'll have historic values. Stop knocking them down. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I would love a car park plaque scheme. You know, if you found out Gary Lineker parked here in 1996, <laughs> that would change the way I felt about Doesn't that space. Because basically every Indian restaurant in the country has a picture of Gary Lineker. <laughs> Does that make you feel different about those? <laughs> it's, I can't he believe... He must have parked somewhere. Yeah. He must have gone to so many Indian restaurants around the country because they are... It's everywhere. There's one right near here, yeah. right near where we're recording this now. And it's I just can't imagine how he had the time as a top-class footballer to be ploughing through... <laughs> that many curries I can't imagine what it's like to share a bathroom with him <laughs> slightly related I saw Gary Lineker once in a service station um, I can't remember which one like Did a proper you? sort of motorway service station and I was with the comedian John Robbins we were now our way to oh, a gig yeah. somewhere mm. and um, he suddenly like nice to me went, Gary Lineker ahead of us in the queue and the thing that just amazed us most was he'd obviously been travelling from somewhere to somewhere and was wearing the most crisp white shirt without a crease in it oh really so you've obviously got out of a car mm-hmm. how are you looking so amazing that's interesting yeah there nice. Well done, Gary. Was he, was he absolutely going to town on a, uh, on a corner or something? <laughs> while it was... Not in Starbucks, no. <laughs> he was signing a cup for them, though. So I guess they were putting that. They were oh, going to put that on we his go. Yeah. Was he? Yeah. yeah. All celebrities get around a lot. Gary's the only one who comes with his own marker pen. Yeah, on there, <laughs> yeah. Um, But yeah, you're right. Going back to this architecture, <laughs> I, oh yeah, <laughs> which we're talking about, I think. Um, 
there is this assumption that it's bad for a community people get very depressed it's for, it has a negative impact on mental health um there was lots of chat in the 80s which like thatcher's era there was this big pushback against all the this brutalist architecture and people saying like thatcher's favorite housing expert who was a woman called alice coleman saying um it's increasing levels of crime and antisocial behavior in all these areas partly because um i think there's less surveillance if you've got those big tower blocks you can't mm. really you can get away with a lot she said and people mm. do assume that and i couldn't really find any evidence of any studies that say people's mental health is affected and also i think what happened so post-war when there was a housing shortage you know after the blitz and everything you had to build quickly and there was this fashion in europe for building up these modernist architects so le corbusier who built unité d'habitation all these grand ideas but what we tried to do here is do it cheaply because you had mm-hmm. when Churchill's government came back in in 51 and you then had I think the housing minister then was Macmillan and the idea was to build quickly and cheaply and so mm-hmm. there was the, the disaster that happened at Ronan Point which was a tower block in Newham mm-hmm. and it was built 16 stories higher than it should have been so the designs were for it to be 16 stories <laughs> lower lot. that's a lot to add and they used what's called it's called an LPS system which is a large panel system so it's precast concrete panels that are then slotted together in yep. in situ. Mm-hmm. And, and what happened, apparently, that in this particular building, some of the gaps between the, the panels were so big you could, like, put a coin through them, and they just stuffed them with newspaper. Oh, my God. And then a gas explosion happened, um, and one corner, sort of the pictures were all over the papers, this corner blown off of this... Mm-hmm. thing but of course it spread really quickly because of the gaps in the yeah. panel system and all of this so it it was all kind of set up to fail in this country because mm. there were tower blocks in Europe that worked perfectly well and obviously what happened as well is that when right to buy came in people would buy their council homes and then they'd move up the property ladder move out and then private landlords would let them so you end up with this situation where it's the poorest people in society all packed together in places without a concierge without any proper management Mm -hmm. and with nooks and crannies where drug dealers or whatever could so they were set up to fail yeah from the off really so it's not the building's fault (laughs) funding and the government you know of the time these big ideas cost money and of course the architects that came up with these big ideas never had to live in them yeah although old goldfinger did oh he did Um, live in balfour tower didn't he he did i mean only for a couple of months he did say of his of (laughs) balfour tower which was like the first big uh thing that he built uh it's in london and he said everything i did i did as if it was done for me and to show that he went and moved in with his wife and he used to host champagne receptions for all the residents where they would come and tell him what they thought of the building and what they liked and didn't like about yeah. it although mm. if you do after two months just move to your swanky pad in yeah. North London yeah. then it's... go back to Hampstead is it worth saying something about the word brutalism yeah, yeah definitely because brutalism I think people think is because it looks brutal mm-hmm. but it's actually from Beton Brut which is the French for raw concrete Okay. So that's where, and the term brutalism came from. Um, there's a couple called Alison and Peter Smithson who were mm. sort of pioneers of new brutalism. They were the kind of radical young architects in the 50s. And they um, wrote an essay where they mentioned new brutalism as this new form over function, uh, sorry, function over form aesthetic which um, we should say because it's confused me for a long time researching that you'll definitely know it new brutalism was just brutalism there was no old brutalism no no, no. they it. just started they new. started in i think sweden or somewhere it's called nigh brutalism yeah. was the sort of original in the late 40s i think mm-hmm. and then um they wow. sort of picked up that and ran with it and then there was a, an architectural journalist um rayner bannum who peter rayner bannum who then wrote about it in the architectural review and they described it as an ethic not an aesthetic mm-hmm. so this idea that that buildings should be for functional purposes for people to live in rather than to just look 
pretty. So it was Raina Banham who kind of um, brought brutalism as a word, right? It was kind Mm -hmm. of, they talked about new brutalism and then he was the one who kind of made a joke about the brute concrete in France. Is that right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Because I wrote to John Grindrod and he sent me some facts and he said that the brute in brutalism, because it comes from the same root as Breton brute, it's the same brute as you get in Champagne. Really? So dry. yeah, brute champagne mm. means dry. It also means um, raw. I think Ooh. in French. Oh. Yeah. Concrete. Would you like a glass of concrete to celebrate? <laughs> <laughs> That's what we had at our wedding. No. <laughs> <laughs> Although we did have actually the the tables at our wedding um, were named after either whiskeys because my husband's a big whiskey fan, oh, yeah. or brutalist buildings. That's so brilliant. we had a uh, Welbeck Street car park table. That's we had so a Croy- number one Croydon table. We had um, one of my favourite structures. One of them is um, uh, the Pennine Tower at Lancaster Services. Um, I love that structure so much. So we had a table named after that. Um, I used to live there. I used to live near there. um, And I moved to a town. It's called Silverdale. And um, just to try and get in with the locals, I did a pub quiz there. And they had a question. It was a round where they gave you 10 clues. And if you got the right answer... You, if you go in the first clue, you get 10 points and they go all the way down. The first question was, this building was designed by whoever T- it was. Oh, God. No, whatever it's TP something. Yeah. Yes. Every other team in the quiz ran to him saying, we've got the answer. We've got the answer. <laughs> Me and my partner at the time were sat in the corner. No. Okay. Next clue. Next clue. Oh, next clue. No. <laughs> all the way down to the last clue, which was like, it can be seen on the M6 just outside Silverdale. And we guessed that it must be that service station. Oh. And yeah, that was a typical kind of quiz in that town where all the locals knew all the answers. But if you weren't local, you had no that chance. so yeah. funny. It's a beautiful structure. It's it looks is, sort of space yeah. age, a kind of like a flying saucer mm. on a yeah. pole kind of about it. Fortin Tower you would have got on I think quite well with Thomas Edison who was yeah. also <laughs> do you know about his concrete obsession I don't uh, think I do no oh god I think you might have married him <laughs> in a different life he he was obsessed with it he set up Edison Portland Cement Company and he wanted to make houses and all of their interiors entirely out of concrete and he actually I think it was because he had lots of sand left over from other stuff he was trying so <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why he was making sandcastles um, and he imagined houses made entirely of concrete but then inside they would have concrete tables and chairs mm. and bathtubs made of concrete uh, fridges made of concrete pianos and he built um, I think he built a little version a little concrete cottage yeah. and it just it does look like someone's taken a normal house and then they've poured concrete over all the items I in it I think that was kind of yeah. his idea right he would just get this kind of shape of a house Mm-hmm. And all you would have to do is pour concrete in, yeah. and eventually it would set. You take off the mold, and you'd have a house, and it would have all the tables in and everything. But I think that's does that still exist? That building? Maybe. Uh, there might be. There, there I might think be that one, original yeah. one might might still exist. They yeah. probably have tried to get rid of it, but found it impossible <laughs> to destroy. <laughs> yeah, there's a place called Hermit's Castle, which is in Scotland somewhere, and I can't remember exactly where. But it was a um, an early sort of, I think in the early fifties, maybe this architect David, someone I can't remember his name. This is just full of me trying to remember people's names but he um built like this little uh out of concrete this little castle mm-hmm. and the idea was that anyone walking could then just sleep in it or and people do mm. but oh, he yeah. did exactly that like the beds all molded into it and the sort oh, of really? like little shelves and things that's it's so all cool. molded into because they use like concrete they, it's called shuttering so that's the you use wooden panels mm-hmm. or wooden um molds to pour the concrete into you sort of 
line them with ah. resin and then put and then you move them away and you've got mm. so that's why concrete is so exciting because you can yeah. make any shape out but you can yeah it's like plastic these, i guess yeah right? yeah not comfortable though to sleep on if you you know you wish that no. someone had made a bouncy castle yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or a house made of duvets <laughs> angela have you seen the film lock it's Tom Hardy. Oh, in the car. Yes, yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. yes. I have. I forgot I was it was just, called that. About I the was big just concrete pool. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I did when I was. So I did um, British Brutalist Architecture for Mastermind a few months ago. Oh, cool. And um, I, I just found myself down this YouTube rabbit hole. At about four in the morning, I was watching videos of concrete pores going, I don't, this isn't what am I doing? <laughs> this is not going to come up. <laughs> this is not going to come up. <laughs> you should start a fetish site <laughs> on TikTok. <laughs> Okay, that is it. That is all of our facts. Thank you so much for listening. If you would like to get in touch with any of us, we can be found on our Twitter account. Andy is on. At Andrew Hunter M. James is on. At James Harkin. And Angela, I don't actually know if you have a Twitter account. I do. It's at Angela Barnes. At Angela Barnes, an easy one to remember. And you can contact me by emailing podcastacuite.com or you can go to our website, nosuchthingasafish.com where you can find all of our previous episodes and lots of other fun stuff as well as a link to join class. Fish, which is our super secret exclusive, not that secret because we announce it every week, members <laughs> club where you can get ad free episodes if you just hate those adverts and you can also get extra special bonus content as we release it. Uh, but more importantly, Angela, where can people get tickets to your tour? Oh yes, I'll be going on tour in February 2023 throughout the spring and they can get tickets from my website which is angelabarnescomedy.co.uk yeah, do that. Don't don't join Clubfish. Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay, thanks everyone very much for listening, and we'll be back again next week. We'll see you then. Goodbye. Mm-hmm.